Chapter 4, we have the heavenly throne room, its attendants and their praises, and the emphasis being on God as the creator and sovereign Lord over all. Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, Revelation 4, starting at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from Revelation chapter 4, a most important passage of Scripture. Here in verses 1 through 7 we have the vision that God gave to John of the heavenly throne room. Remember, previous to this we've had a vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. The revelation that was given to him, he saw him in terms much like the book of Daniel's. He saw him with eyes of fire, with a long robe, with a golden girdle, etc. Here now there's a second vision. After this, he says, I looked. After these former visions, after the revelation to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, after these things... And a door was opened in heaven. When a door is closed, you cannot see and you cannot enter. When the door is opened, you may see in and you may go in. And God says, come up hither. It is a voice speaking to him 
as it were, a trumpet talking with him. It's important to reiterate apocalyptic literature. What does it do? It attributes things to inanimate objects that are not real. It changes things. It uses numbers and symbols. The voice speaking like a trumpet, what do trumpets do? Well, they call forth to the court of a king, come and assemble before the great king. They also announce judgment when Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. What will happen? There will be the voice of the archangel and what? The trump of God. God will blow forth and say, come now to this final assize. John is being called up to the king's throne room. That's why it's a trumpet voice. The king will speak to him. The trumpet will talk to him. This is the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is alarming John, grabbing his attention with a majestic and regal voice, a kingly voice. And he must obey. He must do what he is told. Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, there are various types of what we call imperatives in the Greek New Testament. An imperative is a command that requires you to submit your will. An indicative informs your mind. An imperative appeals to your will. Come up hither, Jesus says to John, urgently, immediately, with all determination and urgency. That's the idea of the aorist imperative. Do it at once. Do it right now. Come now. Now, Christ had told John in chapter 1, verse 19, that he was to write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And so John wrote the letters to the churches. Here's how things stand now, how they are. Here's how they shall be hereafter. And now he's seeing a vision of things even beyond that. So you have the present condition of the church, the short future thereafter, and the condition of the church after that. That's what's being spoken of in this vision. This is very important. Revelation chapters 4 through 22 concern the events after the days of John. Not the days of John, not while he still lived, not before the fall of Jerusalem, but they concern all the way to the end of time, those things hereafter. Let us read with understanding. Some take the whole book of Revelation and say, let's crunch it into a three-year period between 67 and 70 AD, and that's it. Some say, well, no, that's wrong. So let's make it all about way off in the future, right toward the end of time, just before the judgment and the second coming. Let's call this futurism. Everything in Revelation is in the future. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. And we'll see this especially in chapter 5. As the seals are broken one by one, as the decree comes forth from the throne of God, this is describing all of the events of the age of the gospel. We call this historicism. It gives us a general outline. What will history look like? What will happen to the church of Jesus Christ? What will precede the immediate ending of that kingdom? What sort of enemies will she have? What sort of experiences will this church have? 
And immediately he says, I was in the spirit. This is the manner of God revealing himself to the prophets. He put his spirit upon them and caused them to know things they would otherwise not know. He told them things and showed them things that otherwise no man would have any idea about. He was in the spirit, just as he was on the Lord's day in the first vision given to him in chapter 1. So here, John again describes himself as in the spirit. And notice there, verse 2. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Again, that's why it's a trumpet voice, a royal voice, the seat of dominion, of rule, of power, of victory. It's above and beyond all heavens. It's unassailable. No one can go there and tear that king off of his throne. Though Karl Marx wrote a poem in college where he said he wished he could tear God off of his throne. He could not. God is unassailable. He is most serene and immutable. No one can touch his royal authority. God sits upon his throne. Verse 2. He sat himself. That's the middle voice. In, in Greek, you can have an active voice where you do something. You have a passive voice where something is done to you. And you can have a middle voice where you do something for yourself. When God sat, he sat himself upon the throne. Nobody conferred it upon him, in other words. It's his. Always has been. Always will be. His own right. And he that sat, verse 3, that's a name of God, by the way. He that sat is God himself. Ha kathemenos. Now, you may have heard the word in the kingdom of Antichrist. They talk about cathedrals. You ever heard of that? It's a great big palace for a king who sits there. The bishop sits in his cathedral. Why? Because he thinks he's like God. God sits in his cathedral. He sits in his heavenly glory, ruling and reigning over his whole church. Kathemenos, he is the seated one. He is the God enthroned above. And when you looked upon him, again, remember apocalyptic literature, he's not going to tell you uh, really what God looks like. No man has seen God. But he's going to give you some symbol for what God ought to be considered as. What does he look like? A jasper. Now, when the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from God, it has the appearance of a jasper. It looks like a jasper, chapter 21, verse 11. It has the glory of God reflected off the church, as the woman is the glory of the man. She reflects his image. So the church reflects the glory of God himself, this jasper stone. Also, in the foundation of the heavenly city, Guess what sort of stone is there? It is a jasper, the first stone in the foundation stones of the heavenly city, also in chapter 21, verse 19. Then we have a sardine stone. This is not the little fish that stink and are salty. This is from the city of Sardis, a very valuable stone, a rich blood-colored stone, sixth in the heavenly city's foundation, valuable and beautiful. And notice, there's a rainbow about the throne like an emerald. You ever seen an emerald-colored rainbow? I haven't. Emerald is a green color. It's a beautiful color. They call Ireland the Emerald Isle. Why? Because it's green everywhere, right? Emerald. 
So here, this rainbow surrounding the throne. And pray tell, what does the rainbow mean? Does it mean you can be a sodomite and God won't condemn you and you can say, oh, I'm so proud of myself that I violate the order of nature? No. The rainbow says, you deserve to be judged by God and destroyed with a flood. But I'm not going to do that anymore because I'm gracious. I'm going to preserve mankind. I'm going to keep you from judgment. I'm going to cause till the end of the age, till all my elect are brought in, I'm going to cause a stay of judgment. That's what the rainbow says. Not an excuse for licentiousness and wickedness and immoral behavior and unnatural conduct. Rather, it says God will judge, but not yet, because he's merciful. That's what the rainbow says. God sitting upon his throne, the judge of all men, gracious God of promise, who will call all his elect to himself. This rainbow, this symbol of his testament, that God is a God of grace, looks like an emerald, again a precious stone, a deep green stone, the fourth in the foundation stones of the holy city. I note then this doctrine. What is John being given this vision for? So that the church undergoing all the various ages, persecutions, triumphs, trials, they can remember God, His Serene Highness, sits upon His throne and He is the most valued possession of all. Take my goods, take my life, take my name, take my family. You cannot take my prized possession for He is in heaven and you cannot assail Him. That's what he's reminding us. God is our most valued possession, glorious, gracious, steadfast, precious, worth more than any other object to be retained though you lose all else. Do we have low thoughts of God? Oh, Jesus is my buddy. Hey, the man upstairs. You ever heard people say that? That's blasphemy. God is to be adored and revered. He is to be treasured above all else. Do we seek for riches on the earth? Why? What good will they do you? Will you take them with you when you die? You know what you're going to take with you is your soul. And at the resurrection, you get your body back. Maybe you should take care of those. Maybe I should take care of those and not worry about all the other things. Do we serve a belly God? I will serve the Lord as long as it feeds me. But if God says I have to suffer in order to be faithful, no, forget about it. I'm turning away from that. I serve my belly. The fading treasures, the groveling in the muck. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, you have the muck raker. There he is raking in the muck. And what's above his head? As he's there in the muck and the mire, he has a crown floating above his head. All he has to do is look where? Up. God, the most valuable treasure of all that cannot be lost to his people. Let us be raised to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What is our treasure? God himself. That's what he's telling us. Then notice, surrounding him are four and twenty seats and four and twenty elders sitting. These are kings and priests. You recall this from chapter 1, and they'll say it again. God has caused a doubling of the 12. Now remember, in apocalyptic literature again, 3 tends to be the number of God, doesn't it? 
holy, 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 three, right? Lord God Almighty, three, right? Which was and is and is to come, right? Three threes, you see that? God represents himself in this way. What about four? What is four? Well, there are four beasts that have rule over the creation. They are angels or cherubim. You have the four winds of the earth, which we'll see in later chapters in Revelation. You have the four points on the compass, the created order. What happens when God multiplies and blesses the creation? You have 12, don't you? Three, 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 and three. Three times four is what? It's 12. And if you have God blessing and multiplying the creation once, and then he does it again, what do you have? 24. Well, when did God bless with his blessing in his creation? Well, he did it in the days of the patriarchs, didn't he? I'll be God to thee and to thy seed after thee. I'll bless all nations in your seed. And then what did he do? He brought the seed and he brought his son and he caused him to bless the Gentiles. So the church of the Jews and the church of the Gentiles united together in one body makes what? 24 elders. And so we have the fullness of God's blessing of his people in both testaments. They are clothed in white raiment. They have a robe of dignity, the toga virilis, the toga of manhood and adoption. They are heirs together with Christ. They overcome, as they will say, by the blood of the Lamb, and they reign with him, sitting on these thrones as a kingdom of priests. They have on their heads crowns of gold. They will judge angels. Do you know Paul said that as a reason why we should judge our own causes in the church? 1 Corinthians 6.2 Can't you judge these smallest matters, he asked the Corinthians. Don't you have one wise man among you? Don't you know the saints will judge angels? We will sit in judgment over demons and we will pronounce the sentence together with Christ of their damnation. Can't you judge somebody who stole someone's cloak? Someone who wronged his neighbor, of course, we should be able to. John Trapp calls this a full senate, a stately amphitheater of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, clothed as priests, crowned as kings and conquerors. And by the way, the word senate comes from the name elder. In Latin, senex is an old man. The senate is the collection of the elders. Here are the elders, 24 in number. And out of the throne, what do we see? Lightnings, thunderings, and voices, or the voice of the thunder. Here we hearken back to what? The law of God, given at Mount Sinai. What happened when God gave the Ten Commandments? Lightning, thunder, and the voice of words. God, the lawgiver. God, the judge. God, the king. The God of glory thundereth. Then notice God takes us from Mount Sinai to the very temple and tabernacle of God. Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The fullness, again remember seven, God working in his creation, the fullness of the created order. How long did God take? Six days, and he Sabbathed on the seventh. You have seven days for the whole creation of God. And here notice the fullness of his spirit, 
the oil of sanctification and holiness, the anointing oil, it burns before his throne, the Spirit of God working among his church. Now remember the candlesticks in chapters 1 and 2, golden candlesticks, what were they? They were the seven churches of Asia, weren't they? Did they have a bowl burning with light? No, they didn't. Now they have one, don't they? They have the Spirit of God burning brightly. The fullness then of the light that comes forth from the church of Jesus Christ. Where does it come from? The Spirit of God. Do you know that this Bible that you hold in your hands is called Theonoustos, God-breathed. And the word spirit, pneuma. Noustos, pneuma. The pneuma of God, the Spirit of God breathed forth these words. They are inspired by God, breathed out by Him. They are His oracles, His mouthpiece. The light that the church has is derived from the Spirit of God who inspired these words, distributes His gifts as He will, effectually calls His own to Himself, enables them to grow in holiness and to be patient in tribulation. That is the light of the Spirit of God. Let us ask of God to pour out His Spirit upon His church, that we and all others who profess the true religion may burn brightly the light of His truth, inspired by His Spirit, in preaching, in reading, in living, in suffering, in triumph, in gifts, in graces, in this world, and in that which is to come. Now notice, before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. This harkens back to Solomon's temple. There was a massive sea in Solomon's temple. Was it made out of crystal? Was it so you could see through it? No, it wasn't. It was made of brass, wasn't it? This is a higher temple than Solomon's. And the oceans of the world, what do you find in them? You find colors, don't you? You find impurities. You find some are so wine dark you can't even see a foot down. All of the muck cast up, all of the salt and the filth that's what the world and its wickedness is like. But what is God like? Serene, pure, beautiful, ruling and reigning over even the seas themselves. There are four beasts full of eyes before and behind. We've seen beasts like this in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. Eyes represent vision or wisdom or seeing or prophecy. The other word for a prophet is a seer because they saw visions with their eyes that God gave them, the eyes of the mind. These represent the creation of God, four representing the number of God's creation. First beast was like a lion, second like a calf, third had the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle. These all have dominion over others. The lion rules in the jungle. The ox rules in the plowing of the fields. The man rules over all the beasts. And where do you find eagles? High up in the sky, ruling over all the fowls of the heaven. These are the powers of creation. These are the angelic energies by which God exercises dominion and rule among his creation. Then we see the adoration and worship of God, verses 8 through 11, by the beasts and the elders around the throne. Notice here, verse 8. This is what is called the Trishagion. Holy, holy, holy. The three holies. We saw it in Isaiah 6, 3. Now we see it again in the heavenly sanctuary. The three names, 
Lord God Almighty. Then the three relations of God to his decree in history. He was, he is, and he is yet to come. All that shall come to pass is his decree. All that is upheld right now is by Jehovah the Almighty. Everything that was created in the beginning and was is from him. Of him, through him, and to him all things. This is the living God. They worship him that liveth forever and ever. The elders cast their crowns before the throne. God is omnipotent. He lives forever. He is almighty. He is holy. He rules over all things. He is pure holiness himself. And therefore, when they hear this, the elders, what are they moved to do? When they hear of the attributes of God and of his works in creation and providence, what are they moved to do? Adoration, that's right, worship of God. They fall down before him and they have crowns. You know why? Because they're overcomers. They're victors. They're kings. But where did they get the victory? Where did they get the kingdom? How do they have those nice white robes? Who gave that to them? The Lamb of God that sitteth upon the throne. So they take those crowns off their head and they attribute them properly. These come from the Lamb of God. These come from God himself. Thou art worthy, they say. Not we. Because of our works and our diligence and our wisdom, aren't we smart and those people stupid? No. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. They ascribe it all to him. And then notice, they give a reason. Why is God worthy to receive glory, honor, and power? Why should we ascribe those things to him? For thou hast created all things. When we contemplate the glory of God, the honor of God, the worthiness of God, His power, His kingdom, when we think of these things, where should our minds go? Well, we should have a reason, shouldn't we? Our religion is not a religion of irrationality. Well, I don't know. It feels good to worship God, doesn't it? I get a high. I just want to, want to, want to, want to, want to, want to, want to. What are you talking about? For thou hast created all things. There's a reason we worship God. He created absolutely everything, what you can see and what you cannot see. God created them all. And notice, there's more. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. If God didn't want to uphold all things, what would happen to the whole frame of the universe? What would happen to the planets? What would happen to us? What would happen to the soil and the rain and our lives? What would happen to the animals and the rocks? and the st What would happen? They would all go away. They would dissolve into nothing. It is according to His pleasure, His choice, His will. Not only do they exist now, but in the beginning. Who moved God to create? Oh God, you need some companionship. You need to have some friends. Well, do we need companionship? You bet we do. Does God need companionship? Absolutely not. It was his mere good pleasure. Because he wanted to, he created everything. And that's a reason to worship God. Some people think that's a reason to hate God. Ugh! I want my will supreme. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I want to be the master of my own fate. Oh, really? Well, then you're going to hell. 
because that's the only thing you can choose in your wickedness and your lawlessness. All you can choose is destruction. That's what the free will of man does in its natural condition. But if God says, I will, then he can call, then he can create. He could create a whole universe out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days. And he has done that thing. Let us then worship the true and living God, the creator of heaven and of earth. And thus far, the exposition of Revelation chapter 4.